news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I'm gonna take you to the bank. To the blood bank. Welcome, B-Movie Maniacs, to the very first episode of B-Movie Babylon, a safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B in B-Movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the Horror Geek on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show Beat the Geeks, or from my YouTube channel where I host a show called Sick Flicks. Others may remember me as that asshole from social media. Technically, I'm all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we explore the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget rip-offs of popular movies, direct-to-video skinamax flicks, classic horror fare, action, sleaze, or exploitation, I've got you covered. Since this is our inaugural episode, I wanted to kick things off in a very big way. And what better way to do that than with a ninja movie? That's right, we're tackling Ninja 3, The Domination, which may be the greatest demonic possession film since The Exorcist. <laughs> really, I'm only half joking when I say that. Don't believe me? Well, let's just dive right in. Before we get into the actual movie, let's provide some background for anyone who wasn't actually alive in 1980. <laughs> Boy, did you guys miss out. If you're not familiar with ninjas, and unless you've been living under a rock for the last 40 years, I'm not sure how you wouldn't be, Ninjas were black-clad assassins from historical Japan. They were skilled in the art of espionage and killing and assassination and other unsavory things. There is a lot of mythology surrounding ninjas, historically speaking, but they did exist, often serving as spies and hired killers for lords and other various dignitaries throughout Japan. Look, this isn't a history channel, it's just a movie review show, but that's what they were. They were sort of like the yin to the samurai's yang, basically, where samurai were concerned with things like honor and codes and bushido and doing things the right way. Ninjas were all about efficiency. The faster they could kill you or get the information they needed, all the better. Anyway, these mysterious historical assassins might have been consigned to the dustbin of history if not for one fortuitous event. Back in 1979, Menachem Golan and Joran Globus purchased the Cannon Group from Dennis Friedland and Chris Dewey for half a million dollars. Half a million bucks? Christ, that's really cheap. I could have probably crowdfunded that. I could own Canon films. As it turns out, Dewey and Friedland launched Canon back in 1967. The duo had some initial success by re-releasing softcore Swedish erotica like Joe Sarno's Inga and to Ingrid, my love, Lisa. <laughs> that's very highbrow stuff, which we'll probably get around to covering someday. Anyway, the early success of these softcore films paved the way for Dewey and Friedland to finance more feature films. Even back then, Canon was not a traditional Hollywood studio. Dewey and Friedland had a very strict rule that they wouldn't spend over 300k on any of their films, and they often came in significantly under that number. Because of that, you could say that the Canon blueprint was already in place long before Golan and Globus actually arrived on the scene. Unfortunately, Dewey and Friedland's golden touch was short-lived. As the 70s wore on, they found themselves struggling as films they'd financed had underperformed, and the tax laws for movie studios had changed considerably. Man, the 70s and 80s were wild. You can just, like, start a studio as a tax write-off, apparently. By 1979, they decide it's time to get out of the business for good because they can see the writing on the wall. So they hook up with Golan and Globus, who buy the company for the aforementioned $500,000, and then this has an indelible impact on B-movie theatrical releases for the rest of the 80s and well into the 90s. Golan and Globus had a philosophy in place when they took over Canon Films. 
They weren't coming in to reinvent the low-budget wheel that Friedman and Dewey had created, but instead were just going to buy cheap scripts that were easy to produce and then take them to film markets and show them off to investors who would then invest in the films that weren't yet made and then make those films a reality by taking that money and making the movies. Really pretty brilliant. The whole canon philosophy basically boiled down to finding B-movie scripts that they could buy for cheap, that they could make for really cheap, and then take the can and show off at the festival and fund future projects, basically. Armed with this new investment money every year, they would then go and make the films and then take them to the global market where they would sell them around the world. In some ways, this put them a little bit ahead of everybody else in this space as far as the globalization of the American film market went. Back in the 80s, most countries had their own independent little film scenes where they made their own homegrown product. And then they would import American films as releases to sort of supplement the regular release schedule for their country's output. Um, but what Golan and Globus did was basically say, hey, we're going to give you lots of these American movies and we want them to be shown in all these different countries, even though there's a language barrier or whatever, because the language of action and breakdancing is apparently universal. So we wound up with like those films kind of having a global reach. They kind of created or capitalized on the global film market before it was necessarily a thing. Now today, American films are everywhere and have supplanted a lot of countries' independent film scenes, which is unfortunate, but not entirely Golan and Globus's fault. Anyway, Golan and Globus were not particularly concerned about the genre of the B-movie scripts they were buying. Canon churned out films in a wide variety of formats, but there's no denying that their most popular stuff were action movies. They started by acquiring Charles Bronson's Death Wish, then churned out a bunch of sequels, then they got Chuck Norris into the fold by making Missing in Action and Delta Force, and then they hit a home run with the release of Cobra. That Stallone vehicle had a $25 million budget, which turned into $160 million at the box office. So Colin and Globus were off and running. But the Go-Go's weren't just all about action. They went wherever the money was, which is how we got movies like Breakin' or Toby Hooper's Life Force or the erotic drama Lady Chatterley's Lover. Believe me, I spent many a late night fidgeting with my cable box trying to descramble the image of Lady Chatterley's Lover just long enough to see a Sylvia Christel boob. While the Go-Go's certainly churned out a fair amount of B-movie trash, their biggest contribution to cult cinema was undoubtedly their Ninja Trilogy. In the early 1980s, Americans were recovering from a raging case of Pac-Man fever, which was quickly supplanted by Ninja Mania. The popularity of ninjas was thanks in no small part to these three films the canon released in the early 1980s. This whole ninja boom is largely attributable to the fact that canon released three ninja films between 1981 and 1984. Americans just couldn't get enough of ninjas. Case in point, this guy right here. I was a certified ninja maniac back in junior high. Like everyone in my junior high, I wanted to be a ninja in the worst way. So I'd go to the grocery store and make my parents buy me every issue of Black Belt magazine. I'd make my grandmother take me to the mall and coerce her into buying me the latest Stephen K. Hayes Ninja Guide. I'd spend hours in my local Walden books at the mall trying to learn the ninja death touch from a crappy paperback. I spent entire days looking at the ads in the back of Inside Kung Fu magazine compiling a Christmas list of ninja items I was going to try to get my parents to buy me. There was no way they were ever going to do it. I had a conversation with my parents once that went a little something like this. Hey, Mike, why do you need those split-toe boots you've got on your Christmas list? Duh, in case I ever have to climb a rope to make an escape after performing an assassination. Needless to say, I did not get the boots. Also amazing is that anyone, anywhere, ever procreated with me. 
I was a grade A dork. Now that we set the stage, let's talk a bit about the Ninja Trilogy. This way we have some context for how Ninja 3 fits in with the other two films in this series, and you're not coming into a franchise in the last film. Seems important. The Ninja Trilogy can trace its roots back to 1980, when actor-slash-stuntman Mike Stone is attached to a film adaptation of Eric von Lustbader's novel The Ninja. When that project falls apart, Stone takes it upon himself to write a script for a new project, conveniently called Enter the Ninja. Stone, armed with his new script, takes the idea to Golan, who's totally on board with doing it because he can see the writing on the wall that these ninja guys are going to be a big friggin' deal and he wants in on that action. Except there are a couple of problems here. After agreeing to take on the original project, Golan fired the original director, replacing him with himself, and fired Mike Stone from the lead role. All Stone got for his troubles was to be stunt coordinator on this movie that he wrote and conceived. And that's really something. Kicked out of the lead role on the movie you wrote and created, and you still stick around in a lesser role. With the project on and no leading man, now Golan has to go out and find a lead to be his heroic ninja. And he doesn't look too far before he finds the most obvious choice. Franco Nero. Yeah, we cast Franco Nero as a ninja. The whitest dude around, never been to Japan, never studied a martial art, but sure, let's make him the heroic ninja. What could go wrong? To no one's surprise, Nero is completely unbelievable as a ninja. I mean, Jesus Christ, you have a better chance of convincing people I'm a ballerina than Franco Nero as a master of an ancient Japanese martial art. However, during the filming, they did make an interesting discovery. Not that Nero was actually good at being a ninja, but that one of their bit players, a young actor named Shokasugi, was a fantastic martial artist. And that, my friends, is where the real magic of the ninja trilogy finally comes into focus. Kasugi had been an all-Japan karate champion and a baseball player, and he'd left Japan for America when he was 19 trying to find fame and fortune like everybody. A master of multiple martial arts, Kasugi immediately caught Golan's eye, and Golan said, hey, this guy's really good. We should make him the bad guy in this movie and give him an expanded role. This was a brilliant move. Kasugi's work was so impressive that he became a bigger draw for audiences than the woefully miscast Franco Nero. So when it was time to talk sequels, Franco Nero was gone and Shokasugi was front and center in 1983's classic Revenge of the Ninja. I'm pretty sure we'll do an entire episode on Revenge of the Ninja at some point, but it really is a pretty much perfect ninja movie. I had two tapes of this thing as a kid and I literally wore them both out from like rewinding and watching the action scenes over and over and over and trying to figure out how to do these crazy ninja moves. I mean, I've probably seen Revenge of the Ninja from beginning to end at least 200 times. It just keeps getting better. Like all three of the films in this trilogy, it feels a little bit quaint and clunky by today's standards, but it mostly holds up. Enter the Ninja was a hit, but Revenge of the Ninja was a mega hit thanks in no small part to MGM picking it up for wider distribution. After that, it went on to become a video store and late-night cable staple. Naturally, the success meant there had to be a third film, but Golan and Globus were a little bit worried that the ninja formula was getting stale and wanted to take things in a new direction. This wasn't the worst idea you could possibly have, but the execution of Ninja 3 was not on par with the other two films, and thus we get this sort of weird, red-headed stepchild of the Ninja Trilogy family. So, I guess we can finally talk about Ninja 3, right? Greatest podcast ever. Took him half an hour to get to the actual movie. I'm sure you guys love it. So, what do you need to know about Ninja 3? Well, for starters, that you could just watch it without watching the other two films, because none of the films in this trilogy are connected. The only common thread between Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and Ninja 3 is Shokasugi. He plays a different ninja in each one. In Enter the Ninja, he's the bad guy slash sort of bit player who gets elevated to a starring role. In 
revenge of the ninja he's the hero who is the star and by the time we get to ninja 3 he's been kind of relegated to a supporting role which was not what he wanted to be this apparent demotion caused a lot of friction on the set between kasugi and golan and globus as well as made life difficult for director sam furstenberg Anyway, Golan and Globus, who were always looking for a new trend to Jack, decided to take Ninja 3 in an entirely different direction compared to the previous two films. The first two films in the Ninja trilogy are pretty straightforward action flicks. But by the time we get to Ninja 3, we've got psychics and possession and reincarnated ninjas and women dancers and aerobics and video games and just it's like someone threw up the 80s, basically. In fact, you could say that Ninja 3 is a mishmash of half-formed ideas that never really gels into a cohesive whole. But it sure is friggin' watchable. Seriously, this movie is fucking bonkers, which is why it has gone on to develop a real cult reputation in the 40 years since it first came out. The key to any good ninja movie is invariably starting things off with an action-packed sequence, and in this regard, Ninja 3 does not disappoint. In the opening segment, our rogue ninja, played by David Chung, who it should be noted is not actually Japanese, but instead is Korean-American, not that I'm one to quibble over details, takes out an entire VIP golf team and security force at the local golf course. I know everyone likes to blame the death of golf on millennials and Zoomers not having enough money to be able to afford to play golf, but I think the fact that you might get assassinated on the 13th green by rogue ninjas probably hurt the game every bit as much. I mean, who wants to get murdered playing golf? As far as the action itself goes, it's good enough. Kasugi was part of the fight choreography team, and while nothing here is on par with modern Hong Kong action cinema, it's still pretty decent. I mean, it feels a bit quaint and clunky compared to films like John Wick or The Night Comes For Us, but for its time, we didn't really care. We were really just here to see ninjas kick ass and use nunchucks and throwing stars and swords and just kill a bunch of people, and these films definitely delivered that. Funnily enough, stunt coordinator Steve Lambert turns up in this scene a bunch of times as a wide variety of different characters. He's a stand-in for the evil ninja, a bunch of the cops, the guy on the helicopter. He's like everywhere in this scene. Dude will tell you he had a blast doing it, and it was like the highlight of his career, I think. <laughs> Beyond that, even evil Knievel's son Robbie turns up in a scene as well, which is, you know, pretty impressive for the 80s. Anyway, while the ninja's kicking all this ass, he gets some great kills in, which we absolutely have to talk about. I mean, he's taking out guys with throwing stars, with the sword. He even shoots a blowgun dart into the barrel of a gun, which causes the gun to backfire and explode in the shooter's face. I mean, how badass do you have to be to do that? How many takes did that take? I mean, these films weren't exactly filled with plausible moments, but 11-year-old me didn't really give a shit. But for as great as our ninja is at killing guys, he's really not great at being invisible, which is why he ends up with the entire LAPD chasing him outside of the golf course. That's okay though, because all these cops added to the scene just means we can up the body count. With more potential victims, our ninja kicks things into high gear. I mean, dude even takes out an entire helicopter by climbing a palm tree, getting inside, and killing everyone in there before crashing it into a cliff. I mean, honestly, the official body count for this scene is like 30 people and one helicopter. Talk about setting the bar high. But eventually, the LAPD does what they do best, and that's exterminate a skill with extreme prejudice. I guess ninjas weren't bulletproof, apparently. Who knew? But if you think the ninja's dead, you haven't been paying attention, because this movie is going to hammer at home repeatedly that only a ninja can kill a ninja, and I don't think there are any ninjas working for the LAPD. I mean, that's probably a different movie if there are. Not dead, our ninja soldiers on, where he eventually finds Lucinda Dickey doing her job as a telephone line repair woman. Because, sure. 
Naturally, he finds her and possesses her soul by asking her to hold his sword, which is not as pervy as it sounds. Also, I'd like to point out here, if you're watching on the video version, that Lucinda Dickey kind of looks like a low-budget Kelly LeBrock. I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk about Lucinda Dickey and her history with Canon Films. Dickey was poised to be Canon's go-to girl in the early 1980s because she caught the eye of Menachem Golan, who was determined to make her a star. How is he going to do this, you might be wondering? Why, by giving her first pick of his best works, which meant she got to star in movies like Breakin' and Ninja 3 and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo. But the fun didn't end there, though. They were even going to cast her in the lead in Breakin' 3, which never happened, as well as the Indiana Jones ripoffs King Solomon's Mines and Alan Quartermain in The Lost Cities of Gold. As we mentioned, Breakin' 3 never happened, but there were rumblings that might come to the screen way back in 2006, but nothing ever came of it. Missing out on the Indiana Jones ripoffs was actually a bit of a bonus for her, because that role went to Sharon Stone, and she received a Razzie nomination for her work in uh, The Lost City of Gold. For some unfathomable reason, Dickie never became Cannon's go-to girl because she quit the film industry to go raise children and has never looked back. Good for her. I mean, sure, raising kids is great, and thank God we got Breakin' and Breakin' 2 and Ninja 3. I mean, where else was there to go from there? Lucinda Dickey wasn't actually the first choice to play the lead in this movie. Director Sam Furstenberg had another actress in mind to play the part, but she had to turn it down because of a scheduling conflict. Well, I've never heard this officially confirmed, the rumors have always been that Furstenberg wanted to cast Cynthia Rothrock as the lead, which would have made this movie significantly better given that Rothrock was an actual martial artist and could pull off the fight scenes with a high degree of efficiency and realism. Beyond that, there are also reports that they offered the part to Heather Locklear, who also turned it down because she didn't want to be in a ninja movie. God knows why. What's really interesting about Lucinda Dickey's short-lived success is that many people assume she was discovered through Breakin'. As it turns out, this isn't accurate. She was actually cast in Ninja 3 first, and Golan and Globus liked her so much that they rushed Breakin' into production and editing to get it out into theaters first. I mean, if you think about it, I guess it sort of makes sense, because the only thing guaranteed to be shorter-lived than the ninja craze was the breakdancing craze. You had to get in there fast if you wanted to make some money. And honestly, I'm still sort of miffed that Canon never gave us a ninja breakdancing film. I mean, why didn't that happen? Anyway, back in the plot, Lucinda winds up not only possessed, but now she's got a list of cops to kill who killed the original ninja. That's convenient. After an exciting aerobics montage, Lucinda shows off her new ninja skills by beating up some meatheads outside. Funnily enough, she learned how to climb utility poles for this role, but she only got a week to master martial arts. I mean, it prioritize. And 30 minutes in, Shokasugi finally shows up. It's nice of him to finally arrive in his own movie. I guess his ghost ninja sense was tingling. What's most interesting about Kasugi's getup here is that he's wearing a suba, which is a sword handguard, as an eye patch. That's wild. And now that we can finally get this show on the road, it's probably a good time to talk about the problems Kasugi had with Canon Films during the production of this movie. The big issue of Ninja 3 The Domination basically revolves around sexism and sex appeal. Kasugi, for his part, was absolutely opposed to the idea of a female ninja because he just couldn't accept the fact that a woman, even a ninja, could beat up a man. Which is pretty weird, really, because there were historical female ninjas. Look them up. They only got Kosugi on board by adding the supernatural element to James Silk's script. Kosugi just couldn't accept that a woman could beat a man, but a woman possessed by a ninja who could beat up another ninja was apparently A-OK. -okay. I don't have to make it make sense, that's just the way it went down. 
What's really wild about this is, as I mentioned, there were female ninjas, historically speaking, and they didn't care because Kasugi liked the supernatural element and that was what was going to get him in, so that was what they were going to do. And frankly, it was the right choice because this movie's batshit crazier because of it. Even with the changes, Kasugi still didn't feel that Ninja 3 actually worked and the film fractured his relationship with Canon Films irrevocably. In a 1986 interview, he explained, I tell you the truth, this was Menahem Golan. I said it doesn't work, but he was believing in the ninja mystery plus breakdancing and also trying to make a psychic concept. Which totally sounds like something Canon Films would try to pull off. I mean, to be fair, it's pretty easy to imagine why Golan and Globus wanted to add a female ninja to the mix. I mean, if male ninjas were going to put butts in theater seats, then a sexy female ninja should increase that number almost exponentially, right? Unfortunately, that math didn't work out, as we're about to find out. I don't know if this is because the casting of Dickie was off, or just because male audiences in the 80s wanted men ninjas doing all the killing. Either way, just didn't work. The finished film is basically the movie Golem wanted them to make, but a contract dispute after filming ended the relationship between Kasugi and Cannon for good. The thing is, is there were clearly already issues between Kasugi and Golan and maybe Globus as well. Although I've never heard the official tea spilled on this topic, here's what I think probably happened. As with most things Hollywood related, this was almost assuredly over money and ego. I mean, it is pretty wild that Kasugi went from bit character to star to supporting character to out of the franchise he was the face of in the span of three movies. <laughs> you know what they say, life comes at you fast, so you better have ninja reflexes. At any rate, Golan's insistence that Kasugi not be the lead in the film did not sit well with the ninja. Kasugi did eventually cave and agree to a reduced role, but he was never happy about it and limited his participation in the production because of this snub. For example, Kasugi refused to train Lucinda Dickey for her martial arts segments, which was probably a bit of a headache. For her part, Lucinda Dickey says that Kasugi was very polite to her and a consummate professional on the set, but he just clearly was not particularly engaged in making this film. We'll go into more detail about that in a little bit. Back in the plot, Ninja 3 is not content just to riff on ninjas and aerobics and The Exorcist, but it's also got an arcade tie-in as well. James Silk's script throws in a nod to the popular video game urban legend about Polybius. In the film, the ninja spirit makes contact with Dickie through a bouncer arcade machine in her apartment. As the story goes, Polybius machines started turning up in arcades in the suburbs around Portland, Oregon in 1981. The game didn't cause people to become possessed by an evil ninja, but instead was rumored to be a psyops operation by one of the Alphabet Soup government agencies. Polybius was popular to the point of addiction, as the story goes, with people lining up for hours to play and fights breaking out when people didn't get their turn. Beyond that, there were always rumors that strange men in black would show up to collect data from the machines so that they could take it back to their agency and figure out the psychoactive effects it had on people. Players supposedly suffered a series of unpleasant side effects after playing Polybius. These included night terrors, insomnia, seizures, headaches, all kinds of really weird stuff. Then, a month after it mysteriously appeared, Polybius disappeared, never to be heard from again, just like all good urban legends. Anyway, now that we've got Lucinda Dickey possessed, she can get down to the business of killing cops. For her part, Lucinda knows something's off and she's worried about her immortal soul, so she has her pushy cop boyfriend take her to have an exorcism. You know, as you do when a ninja's cohabitating in your girlfriend. Except, the exorcist is none other than James Hong! 
who is also Chinese and not Japanese. So that's two characters playing Japanese in this movie who are not Japanese. Just wanted to put that out there. I mean, really, way to pay attention to the details. And plus, you just took her to Lopan. We're totally screwed now. Hong gets down to the business of exercising the ninja, but it does not go as intended. You cannot stop me! Only a ninja! I'm sure this is fine. Only a ninja can destroy a ninja. Oh, well, why didn't you say so sooner? You can't swing a set of nunchucks around downtown LA without hitting at least 30 ninja wannabes. If you're wondering where Kasugi is, don't worry. He's off infiltrating the morgue to find the body of the dead ninja. You know what they say about morgues. Everyone's dying to get in there. And since we're in the morgue with nothing better to do, this is as good a time as any for a flashback. This is where we learn that the Grey Ninja killed Kasugi's family in Japan. Great. Now this time it's personal. From there, we hit a bit of a lull, but not for long because Lucinda Dickey is headed to the funeral for the cops we killed in the opening action scene. Too bad for her, Show Kasugi is also going to be here as well. I mean, I know LA had a lot of gangs, but I was totally unaware of their ninja problem back in the 1980s. With Kasugi and Dickie in the same place, it means it's finally time for some ninja versus ninja action. And really, it's not a moment too soon because we're two-thirds of the way through this movie. <laughs> I do love that more cops eventually show up. It's like, calling all cars, calling all cars, we've got a ninja street fight at Crenshaw, all units respond. Anyway, at the end of this, Kosugi ends up arrested, which is no big deal for a ninja because you know he's going to bust out using some crazy ninja tools, which he does. Then he gets Lucinda's boyfriend to steal the sword and meet him at a temple, which is really just a door surrounded by a map painting. And everyone does wind up at the temple for the final showdown where the ninja leaves Lucinda's body and returns to his own, sort of like a zombie ninja. Wait, don't anyone steal that idea. As soon as I'm done recording this, I'm going to write zombie ninja. Kasugi is nonplussed by this turn of events, so he starts kicking ninja ass, except our ninja has some ninja magic, and he's going to turn all the monks in the temple into his private security force. Man, is there anything ninja magic can't do? Anyway, the fight eventually winds up outside, where Kasugi has things totally under control until we learn that Lucinda Dickey is basically a kill thief, and she rushes in and stabs the guy with his own sword. This is another point where the production gets really interesting because Kosugi was pissed that he had to play second fiddle to a woman in this film and there was no way in hell he was letting her take the kill of the ninja at the end. The original ending for the film involved the idea that Lucinda Dickey would take the sword and run the ninja through with it, thus completing her transformation into an actual ninja and everyone would go off into the sunset super happy. Except there was no sell and show Kasugi on this idea. According to various stories from the production, Kasugi got angrier and angrier about this proposed ending as the production progressed, and by the time they got to the final scene, he just flat out refused to do it. With their supporting character unwilling to shoot his scenes, they decided to wrap production and head back to LA with the hopes that the editors could cobble together an ending from the footage they already had. Unfortunately, this did not work. One also has to wonder why they would even do this in the first place. Like, what is the point of, like, having a Shokasugi ninja movie where you show up to see Shokasugi do his ninja shit that you've seen him do in two previous movies, and then you don't let him do it, and you don't let him kill the ninja at the end? Like, it's a weird idea. As we've mentioned earlier, I have no official insight into what exactly fractured the relationship between Golan, Globus, and Kasugi, but I do have my theories, and the one about it being money seems the most obvious. But to take that a step further, I think this was probably the thing that Golan and Globus were thinking about when they made these choices. 
The Go-Go's were basically the modern day Roger Corman's when it came to cheap B movies. And so they had this franchise that was a huge success and they had made several films in the series and they now had this, this crossroads basically where they had a star who was the face of the franchise, right? And the franchise was making money. So the star is going to want more money and they did not want to pay the star more money. So they felt that like, by the time you get the Ninja three, Maybe we can start easing him out of the production so that it's not just about him. So we can continue to make ninja movies that maybe show Kasugi is in or maybe he's not in. Basically, Kasugi would have them over the barrel financially because if he was the face of the ninja trilogy or a bigger ninja franchise, then you couldn't get rid of him without alienating the audience who didn't want a new ninja. Like ninja movies were show Kasugi. That's how we thought about them at this point of the 80s, right? So I think Golan and Globus kind of saw the writing on the wall here with this situation and went like, oh, this ninja thing has legs. We don't know how long it's going to go, but we also don't want to continue to pay this guy more and more money where he gets us over the barrel financially in order to keep making these movies. And we're sort of held hostage to his demands. So this is as good a point as any to kind of shift gears and recast and take this in a new direction. And what made more sense than adding a female ninja right in the 80s? Like it was a no brainer except it didn't work. In a lot of ways, this was like a sort of soft reboot of the Ninja franchise, I think. And they started to do it at the right time before they had alienated Kasugi completely and were forced into shifting the actors in the lead roles, but it just didn't really work. And we'll talk a little bit more about that again further in this episode. So back in LA, they realized that they don't have an ending to this movie because they don't have enough footage to make it happen. So they're going to have to get Kasugi on board. And the only way they're going to get show Kasugi on board with coming back to shoot this final fight scene is by letting him kill the evil ninja. So reshoots were scheduled. To make this all happen, they came up with a new ending, again, allowing Kasugi to kill the evil ninja, and then filmed it in Simi Valley, California, instead of traveling all the way back to Arizona where they had shot the principal photography for Ninja 3. And to be fair, this new ending makes sense, because the film harps on the fact that only a ninja can kill a ninja, so Lucinda Dickey killing a ninja makes absolutely zero sense in the film's own mythology. Lucinda Dickey is a ninja because she's possessed by the spirit of a ninja, but when that spirit leaves her body and goes back into his own body at the climax in the temple, she is no longer a ninja, so therefore she could run him through with the sword all day. She's not a ninja. He's not going to die. Only Kasugi, who's actually a ninja, can kill this guy, so we have to let him do it. Just makes sense. Of course, shooting this new ending presented its own set of unique challenges. Dickie, who had wrapped production already, had headed off to make Breakin, and when she took that part, she cut her long hair short. So, when she came back to film Ninja 3's reshoots, she had to wear a wig, which looks terrible. But with that problem solved, Kasugi gets down to the business of killing the evil ninja. Except first, they have to fight a little bit, as is how climaxes in ninja films go, right? You can't just get to the killing, you gotta do a little fighting, show off the moves. It's pretty good stuff, all in all. Eventually, Kasugi lands what looks like a mortal blow, except if you've seen a horror movie, you know that guy's not really dead. He just goes into this whirling dervish earthquake machine as he, like, pile drives himself into the ground and everything starts shaking, which is not actually an earthquake, which is just Furstenberg and the guy shaking the camera to make it look like an earthquake. Ah, the magic of movie making. And, of course, the evil ninja is down there and he's not dead. At least not until Kosugi spikes him in the head with a short sword. I think that's a wrap. It's over now. 
See, even Sho says so. And now he's just going to walk the earth like Kane from Kung Fu, getting into adventure, solving people's problems, doing ninja things, trying to find another franchise to be the face of, you know, the usual. With that all done, let's talk about the aftermath of Ninja 3, The Domination. The film hit theaters in September of 1984 and was immediately met with scathing reviews and audience indifference. This film had a medium-sized budget with an eight-week shooting schedule with an extra week added for the final fight sequence. Ninja 3 had the biggest budget of any of the films in the Ninja trilogy, weighing in at $2 million, but only made $7.5 million in global ticket sales, which made it a slight success. Director Sam Furstenberg has been very vocal in his insistence that the film is a failure in his eyes. His main problem was that no one was going to buy Lucinda Dickey as a ninja, which is pretty spot on. I don't buy her, and I like the movie. This was no slight to her, but by this point, Kasugi was a known commodity to ninja maniacs, and the idea he'd basically play second fiddle to a dancer was a tough sell. Furstenberg is appreciative of the fact that four decades later, this film has found a cult audience, and he's glad it's on his resume, but I think he still thinks it's a bit of a flawed film. Furstenberg is appreciative of the fact that 40 years later, people have discovered the film and made it a cult classic, but it definitely killed the canon ninja trilogy as we know it. Beyond that, he acknowledges that the film looks pretty primitive by today's action film standards. The effects are dated and everything looks a little stiff and clunky. That being said, he does make a compelling point that I have shared over the years. The problem, as Furstenberg sees it, is that modern action films are over-edited and overproduced, meaning that the action scenes are edited to a point where they become an incoherent mess, and there's something just simple and charming about these longer takes where you can sort of feel the action happening between the characters, even though they aren't actually landing punches. Um, our modern, most of our modern action films just have these really fast cuts where you totally lose your sense of space in the scene and things like that. And it's just a, it's just a mess. And one thing these films definitely had going for them was this sort of, um, low budget, but simplified shooting style that where you saw a lot of the actual action taking place and it made everything feel a little bit more realistic or as realistic as you can make guys with throwing stars and nunchucks seem. Going back to the film's cult status, Furstenberg is equally impressed with that because he reports that he gets tons of emails and letters from fans who have found these movies, particularly Ninja 3, in the intervening years since it was originally released. The dude is just super touched that people love the movie as much as they do, and I'm happy for him that they do because, like, Ninja 3 is not my favorite of the trilogy by any stretch of the imagination, and it's not anywhere near my favorite Ninja film, period, but it does have this really goofy charm and it's uh, it's hard not to love it if you really like weird B-movie mashups of things. Uh, Furstenberg is not someone we're ever going to list as like an action film auteur, like a John Woo or anything like that. But uh, he was a very serviceable director who made some really good action films. In another interview, he takes the Kasugi position in terms of laying the tonal narrative problems of the film at Golan's feet. Furstenberg says that they basically had a canon philosophy for how they made movies, and it was to basically shoot a bunch of like really big action sequences, the main set pieces, and then pepper in little action sequences that were like one to two minutes, and then fill in the rest with these sort of narrative dramatic scenes. And you can see that in all of these canon films. They all basically have the same structure in terms of scenes and setup and things like that. Uh, Ninja 3 is no exception in that regard. 
The beauty of this philosophy was that it allowed the director to make a film where he had one team working on dramatic scenes while the action team was off setting up another action sequence maybe for the next day or the next week shoot, and then they just kind of flip-flopped around so that nobody was waiting around for the action choreography to happen. He could shoot other stuff, they could show up and shoot their action scene, then they could shoot other stuff while they set up the next big action scene, which made it... Uh, way more cost effective in terms of like not having crew, the action team standing around doing nothing while they were shooting a bunch of the dramatic scenes in the film. Uh, it was really a pretty smart way to make movies and they did not invent this style of making movies by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that Canon kind of kind of perfected it a little bit there in the 80s. They were they were definitely in that sort of Corman vein in terms of getting the most bang out of every dollar they had in terms of what they got on the screen. And this is part of why, because they just meticulously planned how these movies were going to be shot. And and part of that is, uh, is Furstenberg making it all happen, which we don't give him enough credit for that. Beyond that, what's really interesting about so much of Canon's 80s output is these films were decidedly American products made by two guys who were not American, Golan and Globus, and uh, and yet they have this very broad crossover appeal. You could take these movies and do a quick dub on them, and even if you didn't dub them, you could take them and release them in a country where they didn't speak English, and people could just follow this sort of action without understanding the words. So they were definitely ahead of the curve in that regard, again, as far as sort of globalization of their product went. They made, a, they made movies for one specific market, but they had a ton of crossover appeal, which really probably kept them afloat for years longer than they would have if they'd just focused on the American film market. The idea of merging Flashdance and The Exorcist and Poltergeist and Breakdancing and adding Lucinda Dickey as a female ninja was just so tonally wild that this movie was never going to be a big hit, but it's also just so crazy enough that it was all but guaranteed to develop a cult classic reputation, which is pretty much where we've ended up with it today. Say what you will about Ninja 3. It's goofy, it doesn't make much sense, it's all over the place, but it's a truckload of fun. So, where did everyone end up after Ninja 3? Well, I'm glad you asked. As we've mentioned, the film was the end of the line for Canon and Kasugi, but Kasugi did manage to ride the Ninja wave for another couple of years. Kasugi is probably best known, beyond these films, for landing the lead role in the NBC series The Master. In that short-lived show, he basically played an evil ninja who squared off against a good ninja played by Lee Van Cleef. Yeah, 80-year-old Lee Van Cleef is a ninja. The only casting less inspired than putting Franco Nero as a ninja. From there, he'd go on to appear in Nine Deaths of the Ninja and Pray for Death in 1985. Of all of Kasugi's post-Revenge of the Ninja output, Pray for Death is arguably my favorite. It's a pretty good little flick. From there, he headlined Rage of Honor in 1987. And believe me, I had a pretty sweet Rage of Honor poster hanging over my bed in my bedroom in high school. In 1988, he'd share a spotlight with Jean-Claude Van Damme in Black Eagle, which earned very mixed reviews. He'd also appear as the assassin in the 1989 Rutger Hauer Zatoichi riff Blind Fury, and then turn up in 2009's Ninja Assassin. These days, Kasugi is basically a ninja Takeshi Kitano. He's written books, formed a taiko band, turns up on TV, started a martial arts film school, and more. His sons Shane and Kane followed in their father's footsteps and became martial artists slash film people as well. While this was the end of the line for Cannon and Kasugi, it was not the end for Sam Furstenberg. Furstenberg would go on to helm many more films for Cannon, including Breakin' and Avenging Force. But remember how I said I thought maybe Golem wanted to replace Kasugi to continue the Ninja movie series without having to pay him more and more as he became a star? 
Well, that clearly didn't happen here as Ninja 3 basically killed the fledgling franchise. However, Cannon and Furstenberg would reteam and take another crack at the black masked assassin subgenre with American Ninja. This was probably exactly what Golan and Globus wanted, to replace Kasugi with a cheaper American actor in the form of Michael Dudikoff. The Go-Go's apparently wanted Chuck Norris to take on the role of the ninja in this franchise, but he passed when he learned he'd have to wear a mask and cover up his magnificent beard. The next best solution was Dudikoff, even though he had no martial arts experience, which we learned worked out okay with Lucinda Dickey here. For his part, Furstenberg wasn't content to just make ninja movies. He also made American Samurai, which I can guarantee we'll be talking about at some point. Lucinda Dickey, as mentioned, left acting shortly after these films and went on to raise a family, which is good for her. It is unfortunate for the rest of us because I think she could have been a B-movie star. Now it's time for my favorite new game, Who Would Win in a Fight? In this segment, I like to take the characters from the movie and put them up against noted internet blowhard and all-around tough guy Steven Seagal to determine who would win in a battle to the death. Seriously, this is my favorite part of the show. First up, we have Lucinda Dickey's Christy. Well, Christy's dancing background makes her pretty good at choreography, and Seagal's Aikido practice mostly looks like dancing and not actually fighting, I still think Seagal probably gets the edge in this one. I mean, it's hard to imagine Christy taking Seagal. He's got like a foot of height on her and a good 150 pounds at least, right? Even with the help of a ninja evil spirit, I think Steven takes her. I mean, worst case scenario, he'd probably just sit on her till she's submitted. Next up, we have the evil black ninja. And I'm really torn on this one. The black ninja was super hard to kill in that opening scene, but Seagal was in hard to kill. Therefore, he knows all about being hard to kill. And I have to give him the nod here. Finally, in our main event, we have Seagal versus Shokasugi's Yamada. If we were talking about real-life Shokasugi versus Steven Seagal, I'd probably give Kasugi the edge given that he was an all-karate champion and has mastered several other martial arts. However, even when we're talking about the character, I think Yamada gets the edge. I mean, even if he got into trouble, he could just ninja smoke bomb his way out of there and regroup. Final tally? Seagal takes two out of three, but he's not beating my man Shokasugi in the final bout. If you disagree with that, leave me a comment and tell me why. Hopefully by now I've convinced you that you need to see Ninja 3 The Domination if you haven't already seen it. This one's available on Blu-ray and it's well worth your time. Whether you're like me and you grew up begging your parents to rent you ninja movies and buy you Stephen K. Hayes books so you could become a master ninja assassin or just someone looking to revisit the 80s, this one's gold. But no one wants a movie night that's just one movie long, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and suggest two titles that go perfectly with this one. Honestly, this one's pretty easy. Ninja 3 pairs perfectly with Revenge of the Ninja. I'd watch 3 first, but they're not really connected in any meaningful way, and this way you finish with the better movie. If you're looking for a triple bill, then add Kasugi's Pray for Death. That's a ninja triple feature that would get even the most hardened assassin to come out of the shadows and sit down on the couch and eat some popcorn. In the end, it's wild to me that it's been 40 years since Ninja Mania swept America. I remember it like it was yesterday, heading to the flea market and finding a bunch of junk ninja swords that were better as clubs than actual cutting implements, heading to the cutlery store at the mall and finding a butterfly knife or a throwing star, begging your parents for nunchucks. I mean, it was just a magical time. Of course, you could say that about the 80s as a whole. I've often said if I could go back and live in any one decade, it would be the 80s particularly like 1987, 1988. That was just like peak culture as far as I'm concerned. Part of that nostalgia springs from my love of canon films and just how many great B-movies they gave us in the 80s. Films felt a lot more daring 40 years ago. There were indies and people willing to take risks, which is a far cry from the films made by corporate committee hellscape we all live in now. 
It's hard to imagine canon films existing these days, at least one that made films as wildly diverse as Breakin' and Ninja 3. Canon in general, and their ninja films in particular, were an indelible part of my childhood. I firmly believe Shokasugi was the baddest motherfucker alive. In the pantheon of canon and Kasugi's work, Ninja 3 The Domination sits somewhere in the middle of the pack. The real tragedy here is that this was the end of the line for the collaboration between the company and the actor. Well, I wish we'd gotten like a dozen more canon Kasugi ninja flicks, it just wasn't meant to be. And that's okay, because the three we got are still pretty incredible. Yeah, sure, Enter the Ninja is a mess, but it's got Kasugi and Christopher George in it, and that counts for something, right? No one will ever mistake Ninja 3 for a great piece of cinema, but as a B-movie, it gets my seal of approval. I mean, where else are you going to find James Hong performing a ninja exorcism or a zombie ninja corkscrewing himself into the ground feet first? <laughs> Nowhere outside of canon films. Kasugi should have had a longer career for sure. I keep hoping we're poised for a Kasugi ninja film renaissance, but there's a part of me that truly believes these films were a product of their time, that they could have only existed in the 80s. A studio today would CGI and over-edit these things into an incoherent mess. So maybe it's better that Cho hooked his wagon to a short-lived fad that was done well before the first Clinton administration. It's over now. It is, but it still makes me sad. What do you think of Ninja 3? Leave me a comment and let me know. I may feature some of the comments on a future episode of this podcast. If you're watching me on YouTube, please be sure to leave a like and a comment, and maybe subscribe if you enjoy what I'm doing. If you're checking me out on another podcast platform, please leave a review and share it with your friends. And until next time, you've been listening to B-Movie Babylon. The video vault is now closed. Thank you.